Hey y'all. Welcome back. Episode 9 of What the Cup, a podcast. Almost into the double digits. How exciting is that? So today we've got something exciting for you. The only person tougher than a UFC fighter is a UFC physical therapist. The director of physical therapy for the UFC, Dr. Heather Linden, joins us for a conversation talking about athletes, talking about injuries, talking about the interprofessional nature of the UFC center and the amazing facility that they've designed, and talking a little bit about how MFD is used in her everyday practice. So sit back, relax, and enjoy episode nine of What the Cup, a podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by cuptherapy.com. Want to learn science-based application of negative pressure treatments? Want to know more about the in-depth research being done at the University of California, San Francisco? Want to take your clinical skills to the next level? Check out www.cuptherapy.com for more information on the original movement-based, evidence-informed myofascial decompression techniques used by clinics around the world, professional teams, and Olympians. That's www.cuptherapy.com. So here we are back with What the Cup podcast, and we have a really special guest all the way from Las Vegas today. Are you in Vegas right now? Which one are you at? I, I am actually in Las Vegas. Right. <laughs> Heather Linden, she's in Las Vegas. I know the UFC has a Vegas location and a Singapore location, right? And so Heather Shanghai. Linden, Shanghai, that's right, it is. Um, is part of the UFC Rehabilitation Sports Performance Management, and she's the head of PT uh, Resources out there. So thank you for coming on. It's been like three or four years since I've seen you last. How are you doing? I'm doing great, really great. I mean, we are booming, moving forward. I mean, fight after fight after fight. So things haven't slowed down too much for us over here at the UFC, but it's nice to reconnect with you and get to chat a little bit today. Absolutely. Um, so Heather and I spent uh, two weeks in Colorado Springs when I was there back in 2015. Time flies. Wow. Um, I know, it goes so fast. And so uh, management of Olympic athletes out there, you spent six years or seven years with Team USA. Right, so yep. great experiences. We'll talk a little bit about that. And then prior to that, she also came to take myofascial decompression in Chicago, I think, way back when with Dustin. Yes. Um, and so that was yes. like 2013. Um, so Dustin is now, he's still with Team USA? He is, he is. He's still there. Um, he's pretty much the head of it now. So he's managing that facility. And then I'm the head here. So both of us have kind of grown into senior clinicians and, you know, have some great facilities that we're at. We don't call ourselves old clinicians. We're, we're master clinicians now. Master. Right? Lots of expertise. <laughs> very artful. Very artful. Yes. Uh, so Nina and I are going to ask some different things and have some fun with it. But um, Perfect. It's been two years with UFC. How long have you been with UFC now? Well, actually, three. Three in May. I mean, it's pretty crazy how much this has flown. So I transitioned. I did six and a half years with the U.S. Olympic team. So I was out of that Colorado Springs facility then transitioned three years ago to UFC. Wow, that's so. fly. And so, you know, we're working with elite level athletes day to day that need quick answers and, you know, very appropriate triage and management of where they're going to go for which type of things. And you're leading up the research, uh, sorry, the um, rehabilitation charge of it all. What are some of the, I would say, key instrumentals that differentiate the UFC from yep. Team USA? And how that yeah, so I, think, I think the biggest thing that, you know, I think really 
is the most exciting part about the change moving over to UFC and that really, you know, differentiates between the two is we really are that um, multidisciplinary group that constantly every caseload is worked on collaboratively. So, you know, USOC has great providers, nutritionists, sports psych, all these people, but, you know, they all tend to be in their own office areas where our office area, we are all put together. So every Monday it's rounds with every single type of provider that is a part of that team that talks. And even our office space, you know, even at the USOC, it was like sports medicine had these offices and nutrition was over here where we have nutrition, sports psych, sports science. Um, we have strength and conditioning all in one huge office building. So every case is looked at from a multidisciplinary approach. So I think that's the biggest difference is how transitional that and how seamless that is back and forth with us and, and how it really helps our athletes, you know, get to where they need to be. Yeah, there's so many nuances there. I think that should be our gold standard for all <laughs> yeah. of our athletes and patients. I mean, that's amazing. It's so nice because for me, I now don't look at it as what is my sports medicine role. It's okay. So I have an athlete with this injury, nutrition. What is going to speed up their healing? Like what should their diet look like? What supplementation should they be on? Strength and conditioning. They have three other limbs that we need to keep moving. So, you know, every single one of us, it's kind of this um, – moving train or moving you know car where someone's driving and then they get the next person switches and drives in so you know it transitions that way for us day to day where if the athlete comes in and the injuries flared up i take the lead if they're doing great you know strength and conditioning and then i supplement to where he can have the best strength and conditioning session and then everything just kind of filters together so it, it's pretty cool yeah and it seems like the ufc location that you're at is a newer facility right and so yep. the way they budgeted and the way they built probably this particular amazing unit that you're in is geared towards that. And I think part of the environment of that is, you know, it's built in from the, from the get-go, from the start, and it trickles yep. down from administration levels, right? Which is challenging. Yep. What if you have a facility, you know, some of the places that I've worked are 20, 30 years old, and they're just not, yep. they weren't looked at like that 20, 30 years ago. And so um, there's yeah, that we were yeah. We were new three years ago, and every single one of us came together at the same time. So, you know, everything has always been developed from the ground up as a whole with all these moving providers that work together and never like, oh, well, you know, strength and conditioning is over here at that department building. This is so, you know, it's really, really cool how the UFC has built a facility that's so, you know, pro multidisciplinary and things like that and really and really athlete centered you know everything comes down to you know you can do great research you can do great skills on athletes but every athlete is different so we really try to fine-tune everything that we do to be completely for that athlete in particular absolutely so you took your first mfd course in 2013 but now <laughs> how you use it in your daily practice may have really evolved so yeah. how do you kind of bring it to these other providers like nutritionists yep. or some of your strength and conditioning coaches that may have not had the same exposure and yep. what's kind of like your favorite use of it what's your like yeah go-to bag we use it an absolute ton especially with this provider clientele. They're very type A, they're very wound up, you know, fascially they're really restricted when it comes to that. So it's such a great tool to use. So all the clinicians that are out of both facilities have been certified in myofascial um, decompression, which is amazing. But what we've taught our strength coaches is how that can improve their restrictions on mobility and improve their strength sessions. So if it's an athlete that 
you know, super appropriate for. We have them come in with us initially. We'll put the cups on them and we'll do a lot of, you know, movement through the positions that they are struggling on. And then we'll work with our strength and conditioning um, specialist to then load them in those positions. So really what we utilize it the most is really functionally. You know, if an athlete's doing different fight positions, grappling, um, if they're doing striking and they're feeling their shoulder, we literally will get together as a team and work on, you know, okay, let's put the cups first to release the fascia. Let's then move them through that motion and then let's load it with strength and conditioning and then work power from there. So really it's a huge tool that we use and we work with it completely. And then we'll work, pull in nutrition and be like, okay, we worked on fascia, you know, we worked on muscle. How do we recover all of this? What do we need to be doing from, you know, what should they be eating? What is their diet? What should they supplement afterwards? And what should they be like supporting on that sense? So. And I'm sure well, what just brings it into my head, that discussion is all this hoopla about hyaluronic acid. Um, and yeah. the science on hyaluronic acid from a fascial standpoint is amazing. It's great. There's this new cell called a fascicite that produces hyaluronic acid that we didn't even know existed until 2013, 2014. But right. You also see on the, you know, cosmetic market, um, hyaluronic acid <laughs> things. Right. That I'm sure your athletes come to you with of like, should I put this on my body to help my shoulder? Right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, Theoretically, it does. You know what I mean? It's it's used for all of that kind of stuff. And with the research that's showing how appropriate that is, I can't tell you how many, like, especially our female athletes are like, can, can I just cut my face? Can I do this? <laughs> like, okay, it's going to leave marks. Like, I had an athlete, I think at the USOC, that literally used it for that purpose. And then she didn't even realize how much red, redness she had and just had like spots everywhere. And she was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? We're like, you kind of got to let it heal. We'll use some laser and some infrared yeah, and things yeah. to kind of help speed up that. But like, that's one of the side effects. And, and it's interesting because oh, kind of a funny story with um, using cups on athletes is I had an athlete. The, the interesting thing at the UFC is I see both opponents. So when I worked for Team USA, you're supporting Team USA. When I worked with other professional sports, you're supporting that team where both athletes actually get to work with me leading up to that fight. So, you know, they're both opponents. Yeah, you might get the, like, funny ha-ha-ha, like, are you working on my opponent? What has he got going on? Kind of yeah. jokes. But literally, I had an athlete that after the fight, he wins the fight, he comes up to me and he says, you cheated on me all week. My opponent turned around and there are cut marks all over his back. So I told you. Like, you gave me the motivation to, like, win. And I was like, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Like, he's like... But it's pretty funny because they'll they'll be like, oh, wow, yeah, they had cut marks or they had this. And, wow. you know, it's definitely become part of the culture. And three years ago when I started with the UFC, they were not very familiar with all the tools that we have to use in order to improve circulation, improve mobility, improve all of that stuff. So this has been a huge new window for the athletes, and it's crazy how well they've responded to it. I can only imagine the amount of like psych, psych things they're trying to like get in each other's heads with. In oh yeah. Head. Like you know, it's going a little hard. Like check this out. Look what I can do this right. week. <laughs> That's gotta be something. Like did my opponent just yeah. Like did my opponent just walk by? You know, and yeah, you're like, yeah. oh, gets, yeah, gets a little yeah. chest puffed out. You know, has a little out, yeah. for sure. <laughs> That's so fun. Um, yeah. So you also touched on this idea of research versus clinical applications that are, you know in the trenches, tried and true, but don't have as much of this robust clinical research on, right? And yeah. in sports medicine, we have to use things that make our clients feel prepared, 
and get yeah, the best out possible. And sometimes that doesn't have the research quite yet um, to support all the things. And especially being in the physical therapy realm, I think we tout that evidence-based research of that one pillar more than any others, right? Right. So tell us maybe some of the other things that you've met with adversity in maybe TMSA's um, environment or this environment from that clinical research not being there, but still using a tool that's helping people on a daily basis. For sure. Um, I think that's so important, especially with athletes, like you said. Um, I've always, you know, really been an evidence-based clinician where, you know, you really want to support evidence. But in the bottom line is, you know, there's a huge placebo effect. There's a huge mental effect when it comes to athlete preparation. Um, each athlete's different. Each athlete feels different things work for them. So, you know, when I was at the USOC, we really didn't adventure out if it wasn't completely evidence-based but like you said when I look at evidence also in this part in physical therapy sometimes your research is n is one you know and that's not very high research but if what you've done has improved what your goals were or what you're looking to do you know it doesn't say that that's not a valid approach in that sense and sometimes you know depending on the other things that are going on with that athlete or what the requirements are for sport, like what they need to do performance-wise that day, you might not, the evidence-based aspect that has a lot of research might not be the most appropriate for that athlete at that time. So, you know, we have a cryo chamber here and I have athletes constantly asking me like, hey, what's the research? This guy said this was bad, this was, and I was like, honestly, you know, let's just look bottom line. Like we're looking for some vasoconstriction. If this is what our goal is and you're someone that doesn't like going in the cold tub or using other modalities that's going to vasoconstrict, that this is a great adjunct to have. So I think a lot of the stuff in our, in our profession that might not have this great evidence behind it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not doing the job we want to do. And if your outcome is showing you something and that athlete, you know, says it's improved and they're mentally ready for, to do whatever they need to do. I think you're doing a disservice if you don't look at the whole picture and look at the various tools that are appropriate at that time for that athlete. Um, so, you know, like you said, we, we do cryo chamber. We, I've done some laser, like I've gotten some really good results with laser when it comes to the wounds and the bruises and stuff that you'll see on these athletes. Um, and it, you know, the infrared laser bed as well, like for some reason, recovery on that after a fight, someone who their whole body feels bruised, like they just got in a fight, yeah. you know, needs some kind of resource. Like, like maybe they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe they did. And you know, I've seen athletes literally just do so much better when I put them in there like 24 hours for the next few days, like just spending 15 to 20 minutes. So yeah, you might not see the best research on this or that, but I really think, you know, be open-minded as a clinician and, and listen to what your athlete needs. Cause maybe yes, the cold plunge is better from a research standpoint because you're submerged and there's moving water and the temperature is this, but if that athlete is someone that absolutely hates water mentally, they go in a different zone when they use it, that might not be the most appropriate. And maybe the cryo chamber with less research is just something. Yeah. So that's kind of how I've approached it. Definitely. I mean, I miss doing dry kneeling being in Colorado. I could and here in California. I can't, but, and some patients, yeah. there's the best, you know, research article that says that this is perfect for this presentation, but they hate needles and they don't want yeah. to them. Right. Right. So you have to be able to, you know, mold to, your athlete or your client and go from there stand up it's break time stretch it out shake it out now are you curious what they're talking about with a certified myofascial decompression practitioner i know i am head over to cuptherapy.com and find out more about our 
level two classes, followed by certification, where you can show just how knowledgeable you are in the negative pressure world and really put the science behind the application. That's www.cuptherapy.com. Now, hang out and enjoy the rest of the conversation with Heather Linden. Well, speaking of research, kind of newer trends right now is moving away from imaging in terms of yep. where we are in outpatient practice for some of our patients. Um, yep. So I'm wondering kind of where the role of imaging is in more of your acute sports injuries, yep. how you use that with your athletes and how you use that in their recovery as well. Yeah, especially for like speaking to this new grad or someone that's in their last semester of PT school or AT school or DC school, yep. wherever they're at. And they're like, oh, all this stuff says everybody has a disc herniation. So why should I look at why this? Right. And so in this environment, we have to understand that you have these tools that are still very valuable. And tell us why in your environment specifically. Yeah. So can you guys still see me? Because I know my, my computer hibernated for a second. You're still there. Okay. You're good. Uh, okay. So, you know, there's two different ways to look at it. So I, I do agree with the clinicians that say, you know, if you're searching for something, you know, it's probably going to be there because, you know, if you just image every, everybody walking around, are we all going to have some disc herniations? Yes. But there's the other side of it from a sports standpoint, you know, like our time frames of getting these athletes back or getting this athlete to be able to make a competition are so narrow. I mean, we have turnarounds where athletes are fighting one week and then they're cleared and seven weeks later they injure something. We need to turn this around fast. So in sports, I think we use imaging quite a bit just to know exactly what our options are. So, hey, is this something that we can hold off on surgery and do maybe a PRP, orthobiologics? Uh, rehab and stuff like that, but I can't wait that four to six weeks to see if it responds to what I'm going to do clinically. I really need to get on that course, so that's when I use it a lot. I how I also have seen an athlete that when we were at the Olympic Training Center, we did a lot of MSK ultrasound to our swimmers' shoulders, and we saw a ton of positive findings. Yeah, everybody has, and <laughs> everybody has a labrum tear. Every swimmer has a labrum tear. So, but the amount of symptoms that our athletes had was so minimal. I mean, I think it was like below 10% actually were symptomatic from it. So knowing that, you know, we were able to, if an athlete came in with a flare up and the doc's like, oh my God, they have a labrum tear, they need surgery. We were able to be like, actually that labrum tear, you know, that same imaging was before, but now their bicep is lit up. So we've treated the bicep and now the symptoms have been removed. So I understand where some people are like, oh my God, you're going to, you're definitely going to find what you're looking for on the imaging. But we are also in very cramped timeframes when it comes to sports where I can't wait four to six to eight weeks to see if that athlete's going to hold off. Like if they're going to need surgery and get back to sport as soon as possible, because they do have an athlete career, you know, there is longevity of doing each and every sport. So with that, we tend to use a ton of diagnostics and we're lucky to have an MSK ultrasound as well um, here. So we try to utilize that a lot to see progressions. Absolutely. That's a great segue into like another subject that I would love to I mean, we can't even wrap our heads around it because we don't have enough data, but the idea of rehab into resiliency or the prehab providing resiliency, right? I mean, how do you keep someone that's going to get their head bashed in, yep. practicing, sparring, fighting? Yep. Um, how do you keep them resilient? How do you maximize their body's efficiency to be as ready for this as possible on a training basis yep. and a fighting basis? And then what does that look like from recovery from an injury into that? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say that we, we are pretty leading edge when it comes to that aspect. Um, 
yes, like you said, we're in a sport where there's a lot of damage that can occur, a lot of injuries that can occur. But what we try to do is mitigate and look at all the risk in all aspects and look at it from a head to toe standpoint. You know, our, our athletes, when they come in, we're doing a full orthopedic evaluation from head to toe. We're doing a functional screen. We're taking power, strength. We're taking cardiovascular. We're taking metabolic efficiencies, DEXAs, resting metabolic rate, uh, cardiovascular EKGs. We're taking everything and putting it to mitigate all those risks to minimize you're everything. You're taking a baseline measurement as they're like before these other things happen. Before this. And then we also reevaluate probably halfway through their fight camps to see what part of their bodies are breaking down and what we need to. We also use devices such as Aurora rings, like we all have. Um, we use Omega waves and stuff to really track the progress and look at the overtraining and look at when what team needs to pull back because you know we've had times when they're in fight camps and we don't know exactly the intensity the coach maybe pushed more than they said they were going to on that training session and then they come in for a hard snc session or so we really have to be moldable we do a lot of communication amongst full teams coaches and then all the clinicians in here and monitoring kind of what their trainability is and look at how to go from there and then the minute we actually do the test again after the fights and stuff to kind of see where everything is broken down from an injury standpoint obviously if there's high level injuries then I take the lead on it and then we mold all the other testing around what I judge is demo we can do I mean big data so data if you get enough trends and I, I think that's the wave of the future yeah. right and all yeah. these wearables that people can use I think they're just scratching the surface of what our management of our own aging athletes especially um, but yeah. the ability for us to kind of go through training and be resilient through these things and be able yeah to for sure, for now, sure. The head's a little different so Nina's going to ask a little bit about you know yeah those, those head injuries so I specialize or like to call myself as a specialist in concussion management. It's something I'm really okay. passionate about. Um, so yeah. speaking of a sport where, like Prado, so artfully put, you get your head bashed in sometimes. Um, what is the rate of concussions that you see in your practice and how do you guys go about managing it? Because you're managing these acute concussions and that's going to be a lot different than who comes in my door where I'm seeing these people maybe two weeks out and they have their, you know, post-concussive syndrome in a more chronic yeah. sense. So it's, it's actually, um, pretty much one of my new favorite topics. I'm right, right there with you. That's been a huge goal of mine this year because, um, Previously, before, we always have neurologists that are at the fights that are managing all the head injuries that occur. Um, if there's any speculation, the athlete is brought for a CT scan. So that's done quite significantly. I would probably say on about 30 or 40% of the card, um, we'll get CTs to make sure there's no active brain bleeds. Um, and then they'll come in to see us. Now, I will say from a training standpoint, education in this population or the um, – wanting to admit that they have a concussion tends to be on the low side, like definitely concussion. When we've pulled the statistics on fight injuries versus training injuries, concussions is very high from the fight injury standpoint, because you do have medical clinicians, you know, evaluating them from head to toe, looking at cranial nerves, looking at all that when it occurs and then filtering it down to us. But from a training standpoint, our athletes train all over the world. So you know, our biggest thing this year is educating coaches on, you know, what concussion management looks like, when to refer out, pretty much, you know, what symptoms to look for, and maybe reducing sparring, things like that, wearing better 
safety equipment and things like that to reduce that number from a training. But we really have low numbers training, so I know it's completely false. But from the, from the injury standpoint, you know, what it looks like for us is we are right now, we have about 600 on the roster and we have about 300 baseline concussion um, neurocognitive testing done through C3 Logic is what we use here, which I absolutely love. It's a great adjunct kind of between like an impact and a scat. So um, I really, really like it that we utilize that. So we'll get the athlete in literally then a day later, like sun, like Monday, uh, and they fight Saturday, and we're able to run them right through that. And then what we've been doing is we've been working with optometrists, other people to really come through a full screening. And we're actually going to be releasing it this year, kind of our whole protocol of what we do from a testing standpoint, what we look at, and then how to break it into multiple components. Is it more vestibular? Is it more cervicogenic? Is it more visual? Is it more um, migraine and more anxiety driven, things like that, breaking it down and then being able to rehab them fully through that. So we've like worked with groups in the area that have like the Burtec, the VORs, uh, work with audiologists, things like that. And we're kind of compiling our standard. And then what I think is really cool that we've worked on this year as a team is a return to play. So most clinicians as a return to play is, you know, from a medical standpoint, you're going to monitor symptoms 24, 48 hours. You know, you're going to start with aerobic, 70% heart rate max, you know, and then progress from there. Um, with this, we've broken it down even to, okay, from a strength and conditioning standpoint, this is what we're going to monitor. We're going to do a treadmill test to see exactly what your heart rate does and what escalates symptoms. From a nutrition standpoint, this is what you should be fueling your brain. From a recovery standpoint, these are what you need to be taking. This is what you need to be eating. From a sports science standpoint, let's monitor. Are they sleeping? Are they getting proper rest cycles? And then from a sports standpoint, you know, from an MMA, this is going to be your transition. You're going to start with non-contact sports. If it's a vestibular, you're going to reduce jujitsu and things like that. So we've broken it down into complete components of every discipline of profession that we work with and then compiled something together, which we're going to publish hopefully this year. That sounds daunting. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I'm like nerding out over here. No, it's so good. It is so I good. Mean, like we're all striving for best practice, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, yeah. again, I think it comes back to data. Like you need to compile as much data as you can for this demographic. Yeah. And your demographic is very specific, right? Yeah. Um, and then so it's pretty crazy in the three years that I've been here that we finally have been collecting data just on injuries alone. We had over 1300 injuries in three years to look at and see exactly when does it happen during the fights? What is the mechanism? Is it more grappling, striking? Is it more submissions? What, you know, how long are they out? What's the average time they're missing? Like, it's pretty cool. Like you said, data is amazing. I mean, yeah, and it's going to be so novel to have this stuff out there published. There will be at some point to know the difference between your female athlete and your male athlete, right? And yeah. just some of those yeah. things. It's just gonna because be even the injury mechanisms from female to male to lightweight to heavyweight so are so extremely different that, you know, as from training, as coaching or a clinician working with that type of athlete, you need to know even those specifics to really be doing them, you know, their service. Absolutely. Um, so cool. This you know, let's finish up with the uh, very appropriate for the time we're living, um, the COVID era, right? We're in this yeah. and you guys just had Fight Island. So the Fight Island happened. Yeah. Tell us a little bit yeah. about that experience and just say maybe some of the details of how, was it like a bubble? Did you guys create this thing to create an absolute safety? Because I yeah. kind of talk about six feet, it's, it's less than six inches with their face to their face yeah. and all the things yeah. going on with that. So yep. yeah, as, as Nina and I step away from each other. I know, right? 
uh, I mean, honestly, I can say the UFC has done such a good job, and I think that's why we're still going. We're the first sport to really get back out there, and we continue to be successful. I mean, we were super strict with all of our SOPs on, you know, how we were going to do the COVID, how testing would look like, you know. It, the first fight, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie and say it was seamless. I mean, even – when athletes were coming in one way and then coming down the stairs to get tested for your second test the next day. Like there's just so many moving parts that you have to figure out, you know, and when I talked to a bunch of other sports after UFC about kind of what we did in our standards, it was really good to talk and say, okay, run through it because you know, this is exactly how you need things to look. But when we went to fight Island, honestly, we couldn't have asked for more of a seamless, perfect experience. I mean, we, were brought to a hotel in all we had charter planes from Las Vegas, Brazil, Russia, and Europe. And all of those charter planes, you arrived where the airports were, which in the States it was Las Vegas. So athletes and staff and cornermen and coaches were flown to Vegas where we rented out a hotel for ourselves. Everybody was tested and then put in the rooms for quarantine. Um, food was brought to them. Uh, they were given a, an extra attaching room so they could train with mats and stuff in it. Um, they were tested with COVID. Once everybody was negative, we took buses right to the charter, boarded the plane there. We had our own plane for, you know, which was amazing for our 15 hour flight. <laughs> got, got off there, literally escorted onto buses. The buses took us to the hotel where the first floor was all set up with testing. And then once you were tested, you were brought to your room and you were there for, um, 24 hours where food was delivered, anything you needed was delivered to you. Then you did a second test there. So within three days, you were tested three times. Um, once the second test was cleared you were, and 48 hours had occurred, then you were released from your quarantine. Every day you were tested, you were given a new bracelet. Um, and then we kind of created this it was like hotel and then we had a few different mile radius where we could travel and literally it was like barricaded with security. You could not leave. Plus Abu Dhabi was completely shut down. So there was no commercial airlines. There was no other hotels open besides ours. So there was, I mean, it looked like a complete remote Island where we were just the only ones there. And we had within that, we had a golf course. We had a beach. Granted the beach was like, the water was like 95 degrees. So, <laughs> If you didn't do anything before four o'clock, you didn't do anything. Um, but everything was, you know, we were in this radius where we had our venue, we had our hotel, we had a beach, we had a golf course, we had uh, Formula One cars to drive around like with, with drivers. All the hotel had been like staff, everybody that was staffing all of this had been there for two weeks in quarantine and were t along the same testing protocol. So it was pretty cool. It's like one of my typical weekends. It's fine. It's not a big deal. Right? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> that sounds so cool. It must have been an amazing experience for you. Just yeah, and it's yeah, it's it's so great. And we're going back there for another five weeks um, at the end of September. So we'll be there again. It was just such a good experience for us. But then you know we have some great facilities here in Vegas where we rented a hotel as well. That's out to us and. We have these facilities here, and we're able to keep the fights going, which has been great for our athletes. So, really good. Well, I think I, this is like my 22nd test I've done so far. Efficiency yeah. is what it sounds like. Efficiency, you know? right? Um, <laughs> definitely have to send you a, a new MFD kit. We have this new pressure pump, so you know the pressures you're using while you use them. So, it's much more adjustable oh, now. That's awesome. But yeah, I need to send that out to you. I've been meaning to do it. So, we'll send you out that for your fight island, and you can have some fun with it. 
I love it. All right. Let's do five questions, 10 seconds each. Just like shoot them out. I'm going to ask you very fast things. Okay. Come, whatever comes to mind. Ready? Word yeah. fascia. What comes to your mind? The word fascia? Fascia. Uh, healing. Healing. Okay. Um, your favorite pizza in all the world that you've ever been? Any sausage and peppers. Anything with sausage and peppers. What, what location though? Where, where have you found it? Ooh. What do you think? New York City, of course. New York oh. pizza is the best. Of course. Of course. All right, you are starting back at the beginning of your career, but you know everything you know right now. What are you gonna do day one? Oh shoot, I'm going to change the entire way I do evaluations. Oh, meaning just? Uh, being more thorough, being able to know what you should do, not do, let your subjective guide it and just be way more efficient and way more accurate. Okay. Um, you're going on your private jet to this fight island. You have one tool to take with you, and that's all you have. One instrument assistant tool. What is it? Of course, coupling. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. No, no biasing. All right. Um, and, uh, we, use so we use it so much, and it's just one of those things that's great. So, last question. No, last I'm question. on the hot seat. Yeah. Okay. If you had to pick one animal that you would embody, or that you no, of course. A horse, one hundred percent a horse. Like, because of your work ethic, because you just felt, you just ripped. Work, work, work <laughs> ethic. I don't know. It's just something like supernatural and beautiful about it, and it's just like I don't know. I'm always. I grew up riding horses, and I think they're amazing animals, and they read people. Like, you can have someone that's so scared, and they get on it, and they know. So I don't know. They're just really intuitive, and I, I like that. Awesome, awesome. You have survived the five question test, and that was oh, I'm bad at that. <laughs> No, they're so, fun. they're so fun. They're so fun. Well, I don't yeah. want to take much time. We'll just do this again. We're going to do this again in like six months and it. come back to some more stuff. But uh, yeah, think about the next fight island. For sure. For okay. sure. But I need to send you the new kit. We're going to connect at some point. And uh, yeah, I'd love to get out to Vegas and see your facility. Yeah, definitely. We'd love to have you. So after we sure. get some vaccines and things like that. Yeah. I know. The whole <laughs> All right. Take care, you. Bye, love Thank it. You.